I'm Alex Delay, and this is Vision Vibes. This story was originally broadcast on television as part of NHK World Japan's interview series, Direct Talk. From time to time, an event will resonate so heavily with our times, its consequences will reverberate around the world. A recent tragic example was in 2020 in the United States with the cruel murder of George Floyd, a black man, at the hands of Derek Chauvin, a white police officer. The incident sparked protests across the world and created new front lines in the American cultural landscape. Are you pro police or anti police? Pro Black Lives Matter or anti Black Lives Matter? All over social media, people were pointing fingers. Picking sides. Today's guest knew there had to be more to the issue, a more nuanced approach to bringing communities together. Rosa Brooks is a Georgetown University law professor with a distinguished academic career. Recognizing that studying from afar wouldn't bring her the answers she was looking for, Rosa became an amateur police officer and experienced firsthand the relationship between U.S. police forces and their communities. What perspectives did her time in the police bring her? And how did she use her knowledge to improve police interactions? Let's join narrator Hannah Barnes and find out on today's episode of Vision Vibes. Police brutality towards black people is an intractable issue in the United States, which is increasingly dividing society. To better understand the roots of this problem, Georgetown University law professor Rosa Brooks took a radical approach. For four years, she served as a reserve police officer with the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and gained firsthand experience of policing in an American city. To help improve policing, Brooks went on to found a unique program called Police for Tomorrow, in which young police officers are given the opportunity to engage in dialogue with students and professors. We asked Rosa Brooks to describe the problems she observed in policing and what she thinks can be done to solve them. I do d- believe very deeply if you want to change something, you have to understand it first.、Um, and I look at a lot of the debate about police reform in this country,、uh, and a lot of it is, involves people who don't know much about how policing works in a more granular level. What are the organizational structures? What are the day to day pressures and incentives that Police officers have. And if you want to change policing and you don't understand that, you're going to come up with ideas that probably won't work. Rosa Brooks studied at Harvard and Oxford universities. After receiving her doctorate from Yale Law School, she became a professor at Georgetown University. She has also played a role in government. As an advisor to the U.S. Departments of State and Defense. In her 40s, 
with all these career achievements, and while raising two young daughters, she decided to become a volunteer police officer in Washington, D.C. In her book, Tangled Up in Blue, she relates her firsthand experiences as a rookie police officer in an inner city community. The world of policing is very closed from the outside. And most people, if you're, if you're not a police officer or married to a police officer or the child of a police officer, you probably know nothing about that. When I learned about this reserve police officer program in Washington, it just seemed like such a fascinating opportunity to go behind that and be enough of an insider that people would talk to me freely. Over six months, Brooks completed the police academy training, which shapes new recruits for a career in law enforcement. In this training, she noticed a narrative from the instructors that she thought had to be contributing to tensions between police and the community. There was sort of an unofficial lesson being drummed into us all the time. It wasn't, you wouldn't see it written down anywhere. But the unofficial lesson was that anyone could kill you at any time and you had to constantly be alert for signs that anyone you were talking to was going to whip a gun out of nowhere and suddenly shoot you, that we were hearing over and over, any situation can turn deadly in, a, in an instant. And we would watch these videos of police officers being killed, you know, police officers going up to getting a domestic violence call and walking up the door to the door of the house where the address for the, the call had come from, um, and the door opens and a man with a gun pops out and shoots the police officers dead, and we talk about, oh, well, what could they have done to avoid that, and what tactics should they have used? We were always told, you know, if you're interviewing a suspect, don't interview them in the kitchen. Don't let them stand in the kitchen because they could grab a knife. It's so easy in a kitchen. There's so many weapons available. Uh, you know, they could grab a butcher knife and stab you with it. Don't interview a suspect sitting on their sofa. They could have a gun between the sofa cushions that they could pull out while you're interviewing them. And, and so it was, it was framed in terms of we want to teach you situational awareness, how to be, how to be alert to cues in your environment that you might be in danger. And of course, it makes sense to talk to officers in training about being safe and being aware of their surroundings. But the problem is that when it's just drummed in over and over and over again, everybody could be trying to kill you. It can make officers called trigger happy, right, where they think shoot first and ask questions later. This is the district which Brooks was assigned to. Most of the residents are black and it has the highest rates of poverty and crime in the entire D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. She experienced firsthand how police actions could increase mistrust from the community and spark dangerous consequences. It was one of the first things on my very first day out of the academy, for instance. Uh, I was riding with a, a full-time officer who had been on the police force for five or six years. And one of the first things he said to me as we drove around the neighborhood we were assigned to was, you know, everybody here wants to kill you. They would dance around your dead body. 
one example of, of how this played out, um, one call I went on when I was still quite new, I was right out of the academy, maybe a month or two, uh, and I went with a more experienced partner to a domestic violence call. And this was a situation in which um, a teenage girl had gotten into a fight with her mother, and the fight had become physical, you know, pulling hair and hitting and grabbing. And so my partner was interviewing the girl who was 16 or 17 years old, and she said to him, you know, officer, I'm the person who called the police. I called 911. Um, and so she went to reach for her cell phone to, to show him on her, her call log that she had been the person who had called the police and asked them to come. And so she reaches into her bag, this is in her mother's living room, to get her phone out to show him. And he panics and he yells at her. He says, get your hands where I can see them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and she was very taken aback and upset. And she said, you know, officer, why are you yelling at me? And he said, I don't know what you're doing. You know, you could be reaching for a gun. You could be about to kill me. Um, I don't know what's in that bag. And she said, officer, you're the one who has the gun. That officer was so prime to view everybody as a threat and to think my priority is protecting myself that he didn't stop to think, is this girl going to pick up the phone next time there's a crisis and call the police? Is she going to trust the police to worry about protecting her? Or is she going to think next time, boy, that officer could have ended up shooting me for doing something completely innocent when I had called the police for help? And so the the impact of that attitude on ordinary people can really be devastating, even in situations where there's no no actual violence ever occurs. That's the piece of this that people often don't think about, that they that people understandably focus on, on killings and other egregious examples of excessive force, but these more subtle ways in which that training to constantly be suspicious that everybody could be trying to kill you, it distorts so many interactions in much more subtle ways that can cumulatively have a, a terribly damaging effect. While it's apparent that police do have a record of engaging in discriminatory acts, Brooks warns that putting all the blame on police officers risks missing a more fundamental problem. Policing is a mirror of the rest of society. It's not, it doesn't exist in the abstract on its own. And if we have a society which is full of racial discrimination, which it is, which is full of ways in which the poor people do not have the advantages and opportunities of more wealthy people and so on, you know, if you have a very unequal society, that's going to be reflected in policing. One of the paradoxes of policing in this country is that poor black communities are often, at the very same time, they're over-policed and they're under-policed. You know, that they're perceive accurately that there's, there's a heavier police presence, it's more heavy-handed, and uh, police behave more disrespectfully to people, and yet at the same time, many in those communities often feel like we're not getting the police services we need. Homicides against black people are much less likely to be solved than homicides against white people. When you look at the polls in this country on issues like 
do people in poor black communities want fewer police officers to be there? The majority of the people say, no, we, we don't necessarily want more, but we don't want fewer either. We just want, we want better policing. We want policing that is more effective at protecting us and that is more respectful and more fair. You know, it, it's, it's, it gets framed, I think, often in the media as an issue of either the police are bad or they're good. You know, either there should be more of them or there should be none of them, uh, rather than, you know, a more complicated answer, which is that policing is perceived as doing a lot of good and a lot of harm at the same time. At Georgetown University, Brooks started the Police for Tomorrow program, in which young officers express the problems they face to students and professors and work together to come up with solutions. It is designed to prevent cynicism from arising on the job and to empower officers to return to work with skills which can improve the system of policing. When I was at the police academy, I was, I was so struck by the fact that the conversations seemed like the most important ones to be having were not about which form you should use for which kind of property. They were conversations about what's the role of police officers, how, is, how can we make policing helping help communities rather than harming communities, how do we think about all those challenges. They weren't occurring, and, and it wasn't because police recruits didn't want to have those conversations. I think often people actually were quite hungry to have those conversations, but there was no encouragement to have them. There was no place to have them. Um, and I also think that one of the most dangerous things about policing is because it's such a closed world to most people, because police officers often feel so defensive, they feel like, I'm a good person, but everybody's screaming at me all the time. I'm not a racist. I'm not, a, I'm not brutal. And yet everybody hates me. Well, I hate you. you know, it's a natural reaction. People get defensive. You know, they start thinking, oh, all those activists, Black Lives Matter, they just hate us. I don't want to talk to them. And those two problems really made me think it would be so valuable to have a place where young officers could have those conversations, where they could talk both amongst themselves about what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Is this the right way to handle this? Is this, what can we do to change this? Should we be trying to change this? But also to put them in settings where they could have conversations with some of their critics, where it's not people screaming at each other, spitting at each other, you know, where it's instead saying, okay, Let's start from the premise that we all care about trying to make communities safer and better off. And I think for, for us, for my colleagues and I in starting this program, we felt very strongly if you can't get police officers themselves, not just the leadership slice, but at every level, including the most junior, to care about change, you, it won't happen. You want to try to encourage a generation of young officers to be working within police departments saying, we need to do things differently. And, and that's really hard to do, but that was sort of the premise of the program to help, help foster a, a rising generation of young police leaders uh, who would think very differently about policing. We asked Rosa Brooks for a word that can help us understand the problems of policing. I wrote, it's complicated. 
it's not a good elevator pitch, but it's the truth. It is complicated. And frankly, American society in general would probably be a lot better off if all of us were more willing to recognize that a lot of problems are, they're not black and white. They're, they're, they are complicated and that's messy and not satisfying. But if we really want to solve them, we need to be willing to grapple with those complexities. It's complicated. Words often wielded as an excuse by politicians to do nothing. But Rosa uses them differently. She understands that the most impactful social issues of our generation carry complexity, and that only through dialogue and empathy can we work through them. Too often when it comes to issues like race and policing, we look for shortcuts. We crave a position that we can summarize in one sentence, making us look smart and compassionate without having to do any real research or thinking. Rosa knows sound bites don't solve problems. However strong our beliefs might be, healing starts by accepting that the other side has something valuable to say. Given all the major events going on in the world right now, acknowledging complexity is an important lesson for how we engage with information. Next time you're tempted to adopt an uncompromising stance on something, Take a moment to think, is there some complexity I might be missing? And if you can, encourage those around you to do the same. Only by introducing humility and curiosity into our lives can we make room for empathy and ultimately for healing. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. You can find the transcript as well as our other stories on the NHK World website. I've been Alex Stillet. Join us next time for more mind-expanding insights from inspiring people on Vision Vibes.